This is Learn From Others, where we interview a cross-section of successful individuals so you can learn from their experiences, achievements, and even their mistakes. We ask four questions that will educate and inspire. Greg Stanley will be your guide as we join our guests on a journey from adolescent daydreaming to success in today's world. Join us on this adventure as we learn from others together. So I'm very excited as my last guest, Sherry Kelly Marshall. Sherry, how are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Now, you have had an entire career around the educational world, and I'm thankful that you're willing to share it with us today. We met through a, a common friend, and uh, I feel like you're such a great add to my podcast to share your career. And I'll do my typical questions, but as always, you know, feel free to kind of take us on your career journey. My first question is, is what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a college graduate because my mother had to be the uh, young woman at uh, third grade who had to stop school and take care of uh, some of the men in the mines who got hurt. And there was like a makeshift hospital and she did a lot of service at the makeshift hospital for a long time. Wow. She read religiously. She could add faster than anyone because she had a couple of uh, waitress jobs that she kept us all alive with. But her her desire was that all of us would finish high school and some of us would go on to college. And she got what she wanted. Pretty much all of us finished high school. Several, almost a half, went to college. Several graduated with bachelor's degrees and a couple of us have uh, master's degrees. That's what she wanted. Yeah, that's very impressive and quite a legacy to leave. So that is what she wanted, right? Yes. She wanted her kids to have a better life than she had. My father and she had been uh, in more working in the shipyards. She was one of the Rosie River. And on the way back to Harlan County, she said, Jilly, we need to, we need to find a city to move into so the kids have more opportunities. Up uh, going to Dayton and working with National Cash Register. And mom wound up uh, landing in Cincinnati with some of the fellow, some of the family who could uh, manage a, a large influx of additional young people to take care of during the day. Right, right. Okay. Well, now, I know I want to find out more about your career progression from when you got your college degree to the career that you're soon to be retiring from. But if you would, tell us what do you do today and then kind of walk us through the huge gap of time between that getting that diploma and today. Today, I'm the uh, executive of the Hamilton County City of Cincinnati Workforce Board, which was one of the first nonprofit workforce boards in federal history of different laws that were passed. The Jobs Partnership Training Act, which was aimed at helping, oddly enough, helping employers understand what was going to be coming down relative to um, information technology. So this was like the early years of information technology. I went to college in 75. Um, no, 71 and graduated in 75, and I used to haul around the box that you put your colors on at the top so that when you drop the box, you know where each one of the marked cards goes. That was my introduction to technology. Wow. The Jobs Act was uh, amended, and the Workforce Investment Act came and was supposed to be evaluated every five years, but it had a shelf life of probably 15 or 20 years. And it was really aimed at continuing to promote what's going what's gonna to be necessary around information technology while also helping all of the individuals who had a barrier or more than one barrier to getting back to work and needed to be assisted in how to overcome the barrier or make it a gift. 
and I'll kind of just tell you one of my all-time best stories. We were, in, I was involved at uh, the community college, Bay State, for about four years, and in that time frame, we applied for grants from the Department of Labor and got a grant that allowed us to do a lot of work with introductory healthcare credentials. And one of the biggest problems that some of the hospitals had was sterilization of the instruments, which is a pretty serious kind of a situation that needed remedy. And what we were able to observe is that the hospitals were hiring uh, pretty young people, and right. they weren't necessarily interested in how sterile the instruments were. They were more interested in what happened at lunchtime or what they might be able to do next and make more money. So there was a whole collaborative of people who kind of tried to figure out who's going to care a lot about something being clean, and they don't need to talk to other people, and they don't need to try to find dates or husbands or wives. They're just really wanting to be there and do something meaningful. And oddly enough, Great Oaks was heavily involved in putting together a sterilization program, and they wound, the hospitals wound up not having sterilization challenges when they came for their JCO ratings anymore because a good number of people with some kind of disability, um, maybe intellectual, maybe somewhat physical, but thoroughly committed and very focused on what needed to be done to sterilize and prep and then load those instruments. They didn't want to rush out and get something to eat. They didn't want to take a long time at lunch. They just wanted to do a good job and get paid well. Right. And that particular sterilization project has been internationally recognized. There are hospitals all over the country that do a similar kind of a thing. And uh, Great Oaks was a great leader, and uh, Children's Hospital was a great leader in setting up this opportunity and then coming to see to fruition how to utilize one person's gifts, which may not be gifts in a different kind of a position, but for that position, that attention, that focus, was what allowed them to clean those instruments well and make sure that they were sterilized and packed so that they couldn't hurt anybody. There couldn't be any injury. Right, right. Now, that's a great result that sounds like it's been extrapolated across many different organizations and, you know, different companies that function that same purpose. Uh, now, if you would, can you kind of tell me, obviously, the job you're doing today did not exist back when you got out of college, right? And so what was your goal out of college like what, what kind of role were you pursuing and kind of walk us through your career path into the educational world? Well, I was very lucky because I went to Withrow High School in an era where there were academic excellence candidates and uh, strong athletes and individuals, all of whom had to have some kind of career technical skill. So, yes, I was directed and, and focused on getting a really high SAT and ACT score so I could get into college and maybe get some financial help. But I also had to have three career technical courses, and I did. I took typewriting on one of those great big, huge metal typewriter things where you had to really hit those pins in order to make it being up and show on the paper. And I was able, when I went to college, to use that skill set so that I charged 50 cents a page to the people who were at college who had parents who could pay for their papers to be typed by somebody else. And it wound up being a pretty good little uh, side job for me, sitting at the switchboard or any of my other um, work-study jobs that I had as a result of my uh, scholarship uh, support. Right. I also had class in uh, dictation, which allowed me to take notes really fast for myself 
and for everybody else. Uh, and I also had a class where I, I was taught how to sew buttons on my clothes and stitch a tiny hole so that it didn't show. And um, I did all of those and still do all of those. I'm not a person who throws away a piece of uh, a blouse or a pair of pants that I like. Just because it has a little mark in it, I go ahead from the inside and fix it, and very few people will e even notice. So I consider that era of high school to have been a premier infrastructure for education of teenagers. And right. I thoroughly regret that we removed the career technical and said, no, the academic down, they don't need to do the career technical. So focus on academics or on career education, and I still believe that that's, that's what the person figure out what they actually want to do if they're to both high academics and to particular skill sets for living. Um, it's part of the tension that I've felt since I went to college around people who had the wealth to go and didn't have to do you know, work study, for example, or people who were encouraged to go but didn't really know what they were going for or what they could explore or why they were doing it. They were just doing what everybody in society told them. Everybody goes to college. Right. We ought to have, have, to have two frames to it. Everybody who goes to college should graduate from college. And think about that. Instead, we said everybody goes to college and some humongous number of not the highest uh, income families and individuals went to college and now live in debt. And right. I have a personal, personal strong opinion that uh, that is not the answer and continuing to try to shore up these college institutions so that they can still be around when they're more interested in paying high prices for their ball players or paying high prices for their coaches or paying high prices for the faculty, but not necessarily paying fair, get, obtaining fair prices and helping young people and others to figure out what they can do to make a living for themselves. Right. Um, really distorted our society with this, everybody goes to college, let's ignore the fact that there's a lot of debt involved and not a lot of, not, not a lot of effective training for a person to make a life with. Right. I know that that's a harsh statement to make and people will not appreciate it, but I've come to see that a lot of people do appreciate it. It's taken them longer to see the view that I'm describing, but we really cannot survive as a society if we keep building up college, um, but we don't uh, have anybody to fix our bathrooms or our roofs or our heating units or our cars or our computers or our TVs or anything that we're all accustomed to having about us. Um, I personally went through a horrible episode last June with a little bit of a touchdown on my deck and a full load of five feet of sewage in my basement and the amount of time that it took me to get the people in to be able to fix my deck, fix my windows, do the sanitizing, test for all of the different things that had to be tested for, and then get my basement back together um, was a, a clear message to me that we have overlooked these absolutely essential skills and encourage young people who might be pretty good at them and even feel good about them. Uh, instead, we encourage them to go to college. And right. I went to others in my family went to college, and my mother was very proud of all of that. But we didn't go to college without having to have summer jobs. I had work study jobs. One of my work study jobs was to 
prepare the programs for the sports, the fall sports. So I interviewed all the football players and basketball players and soccer players, and I think we had a hockey team as well, and uh, just sent out press releases and sent home stories to their parents of what they were doing while they were also at school learning. Uh, and that I got very uh, wrapped up around public relations and how to message well enough that people get a good view of what the challenge is and a good appreciation of what the young people were doing. So my first job that I interviewed for was actually with uh, the Lighthouse Youth Services, and, and Robert will tell, tell you that I tell everybody this story because here I was, 1975. The Rust Belt had just been declared. I have a degree in psychology and sociology and education, and um, I can't get a job very easily. So I applied for a $5,000 night, night manager at the runaway shelter house. And when I come in for my interview, there are 20 people around a humongous table. And as we go around and find out, there were like five of them who were part of the, the team with uh, the organization already and knew a lot about the Lighthouse Shelter. And then there were 15 of us who were in varying stages of it just finished college like I to have their master's degree or they have their licensure for psychology or, or they have their PhD. I was sitting between two PhDs and answering my turn at all the questions and I did not win the uh, job. Um, which I, I did wind up on the board for Lighthouse Youth Services for a while and teased Bob all the time about how he missed his opportunity for me to rise up right behind him and take the organization to the next place. But I did wind up meeting someone who was doing some work with uh, historic preservation and needed some public relations efforts. So I applied for that job and got that job and uh, was, was absolutely static about being able to save old properties in our Southwest Ohio region. If you've ever been to Sharon Woods Village, several of those buildings were brought down from Reading Road or from wow. Cooper Road, some other road. And I was the coordinating body oh, wow. the and the police department to make sure we got the, the traffic lights lifted up enough to haul in the uh, really nice Elk Lick building that came from Claremont County, where they were digging up a hole to make that whole waterway that's up in, in Claremont now. That was a great job, and it really taught me about community development, which then caused me to go to work for um, the OKI Regional Council of Governments, and my focus was on working with neighborhoods who were about to have highway projects. So like I-71, I was also working with the neighborhoods that were supposed to be impacted by the um, uh, another expressway that was over on the north side uh, neighborhoods area, and then the Cross County Highway. So I, I watched those things come up. I remember one fight with a neighborhood that uh, really didn't want to have an entrance or off-ramp and made a very compelling argument and a very compelling amount of noise about it, and there was not a Martin Luther King ramp off of I-71. Okay, now, yep. Forty years later, we have the ramp off of 71. So sometimes it's just a matter of timing or it's a matter of mindset or it's a matter of the change in the neighborhood. But neighborhood development was really important to me. I then went to the city of Cincinnati and worked for four years with Sister Anne Renee McCann on a $5 million grant we had from the Mott Foundation to strengthen 
uh, neighborhoods in larger cities. We did a lot of work with that. We had the Invest in Neighborhoods event. We had the Day in Eden fundraiser event. Uh, as I left to take a job nationally doing neighborhood development, we were depositing $250,000 of money made and contributed by, the at that time, um, 48 neighborhoods. There's now like 52. Um, and that organization continues. They don't do the Day in Eden event as much anymore, but they do continue to work to collaborate with neighborhoods to come up with the things that make a difference for their communities, vitality, and health. Right. Then I fully and did that and worked in Alaska and Hawaii and D.C. and most of the Midwest working on neighborhood housing services. Did the job move you to those different locations? How did that work? Uh, I stayed in Cincinnati mostly, but I left on Monday and got in one. Of, do you remember the Comair airplane? Yes. Yep. The Comair airplane pretty much every Monday morning by 8 o'clock, and I was home by Thursday at 7 o'clock on a Comair airline across the whole Midwest. My territory was the Midwest, but I had some specialty skills that were used in Hawaii and uh, Alaska and Florida. And those were all fun additional assignments in, in addition to the neighborhoods that I was working with. The organization has since changed its name, but we still have a housing organization in Cincinnati that was birthed by the movement of our particular program. I need wow. to take a look. Okay. Drink here. Getting dry. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> so then I was miraculously pregnant at 41. <laughs> wow. Uh, how do? What do I do with my career and still and have a child at 41? And I was working with neighborhood reinvestment. It was called then. It's called. Um, oh, I forget what it's called now. I, I was. It was just going to come out of my mouth, but I forgot it. I was. I worked in Knoxville, Tennessee, and because I was born in Harlan County and a native, uh, partly native uh, family history, as well as Appalachian family history, uh, the northern the um, Knoxville group thought that they could get me to work in Knoxville pretty easily. So I went down and worked uh, in Knoxville with the Partnership for uh, Neighborhood Improvement Organization, which was one of the $10 million um, special zones that were being done across the country at the time. Uh, my son was a young man there. He went to kindergarten there, and we were there for a little while. And I got a phone call one day from John Williams from the chamber, who oddly enough was the first chair of Invest in Neighborhoods because he was very involved with the Clifton uh, Forum uh, as one of the neighborhood organizations that was party to it. And his question was, do you know anything about this WIA law? And I'm like, yeah, John, we're working on a building that's a former Catholic school. That's going to be one of the work. <laughs> then right. on the other river, we're doing something else that's very similar. And he says, don't you want to come home? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> well, enough, yes, because my son is going into first grade, and I would like for him to see his, his uh, aunts and uncles a whole lot more and his cousins that are beginning to come up as the rest of the family has children. So we did move back to Cincinnati, and I was uh, brought in to explain what I thought needed to go on with uh, the board's formation, and the chamber was kind of the lead entity. So I worked for the chamber doing work with companies that were screaming about needing talent, and then I was also working with the workforce organizations that were already placed in Cincinnati and Hamilton County, 
And this is kind of a record point that I wanted to get into the conversation because at that time in Cincinnati, we had the county one-stop center on one corner of the parking lot in Bond Hill that was across the street from Swifton, which is now called Swifton Commons. And then just up the other side of the parking lot was the one-stop center for the city's group. So we had the county one-stop and the city one-stop, both in the center of Bond Hill, both on the same parking lot, but catty corner to each other. Oh, right. And my job was to kind of see what we were doing and see how well we were doing it and come up with other things under the new law. And literally what I did for three and a half years was try to get information from the city and the county about what they did, like how many people came into the building, how many people had graduated from high school, how many people were getting industry credentials, how many people were going to college, how many people were getting employed, how many employers were asking to meet up with the people that you were working with. And our 10th anniversary annual report, there is a record of what our performance was for 10 years. And for three and a half years, it says no information available from the city or the county. Wow, okay. I believe in holding, holding the people that we pay with our taxes to a high standard. And to not have gotten that information for over three years was not my idea of a high standard. Was my idea of a low standard. So we decided that we would aim to bring together those two, and I was assigned to manage the personnel from both of them and work them into the system as we began to change it. And then we had decided that it would really be best, the state had wanted to have no more than 20 workforce boards, and they wanted them to be regional for the most part. So Butler, Claremont, and Warren joined up with the Cincinnati-Hamilton County group, and most of that was already kind of in the mix as I arrived. And then I don't know where you were in April of, of uh, 2001, but Cincinnati had some unrest, particularly by people of color and a lot of men, a lot of males of color. The other counties all uh, decided that they really didn't think they could offer much about how to solve that problem since they didn't have that kind of unrest and protest going on in their counties. So they decided that they would not stay with our four-county region, one big city region, that they would begin to do something else. And each of them believed that they were progressively growing in their own areas, so they could probably be their own area. But after a few years, the decision at the state and federal level was that Butler, Claremont, and Ward would be one workforce board and Cincinnati and the Hamilton County would be one workforce board. And the only thing I didn't like about it was they numbered all of these workforce boards, and we'd been alive since the beginning of 2001, but we got the number 13, and Warren oh, no. had been alive for like two or three years, and they got number 12. So I kind of thought that might have had something to do with how strong I felt about a lot of things. So they considered me the 13th jinx or something. Right, uh, right. We've done very well. Subsequently, I did leave for a while. Uh, Dr. Um, Dr. I can't right now, but the doctor who was at Cincinnati State at the time asked me to come over and do workforce development. And I did about three years of workforce development directly with employers around what kinds of skill sets they wanted their workers to go into or to bring into the plants. And then I wound up being encouraged to reapply 
for the position of executive uh, pre president and CEO of the Southwest Ohio Workforce Investment Board. Um, after going through the interview, and that was completed December, oddly enough, I think it was the 17th, and we're just a shy of a few days of that celebration. And I'm now uh, about to exit in the summer of next year after preparing the replacement candidate. Now, wow. So uh, how many how many years in the educational world will that be? Um, well, I, I, had a, I had jobs in education at my college for four years. I had jobs at education for my master's degree for two years. And then I had uh, four years, almost four years, with Cincinnati State as the Executive Dean of Workforce Development. But everything else that we do, in my opinion, is education of one kind or another. It's just not the kind where you result in a diploma or right. even credential, but you result in some intelligence that you can use to figure out what do I really want to make my living at and what do I have to have as a skill set to make my living. And that's really the part of the work that I've enjoyed the most. We serve 14 to 24-year-olds in school and out of school. We serve adults of all ages. We serve dislocated workers who've lost their job for nothing to do with anything that they did wrong. That created the Great Recession, if you'll remember that, between 2008 and 2011. And now we're in a even greater recession because we literally have tried to close down enough, enough industries and restaurants and other places where amusements, et cetera, where people are accustomed to being just to try to slow down the pandemic. Right. So before we had the, the challenge of how do we get how do we get movement on IT because it's coming. And now 20 years later, how do we get movement on the science of disease so that we can capture and, and stronghold this pandemic so that we can do what we can to get back to what was more of a normal operation, or at least be able to move forward with less fear that we will all wind up catching COVID. Right, right. Now, one thing I usually ask, and I do want to ask this in a second, is looking back on your career, what would you do differently? But I also want to know, what do you feel like is the biggest driver? Like, what kept you going all these years? Was it just helping others, helping students? What was the big motivator that kept you going for so many years in this industry? I watched my mother move to Cincinnati and move us every year because we, we cleaned up the houses that she rented and we blacked the floors and we washed the windows and the landlord came in and said, oh, I'm going to have to move you out. And so we went to the next house and we stayed in it for a while and then we got moved out of that house. And in the course of all that, all, all of the, the young, there were four, four young women, young girls, we always wound up being in another school. And any time that mm. we like it or want to stay home because somebody didn't like us, my mother would remind us that she didn't have that privilege and that her biggest desire is that we all finish high school and go on to college and know what we want to do. And fortunately, she was a commanding presence, small little woman, but a commanding presence. <laughs> and I, I felt like I was doing what mom wanted, wanted me to do and my other sisters were doing what mom wanted them to do. And it wasn't the choice of what they did. It was the determination that, that you can't let other people define you just because of where you came from. And I see that across Cincinnati all the time. I see it in other communities all the time. And I, I just have a personal commitment 
that uh, what we need to do is help people not hurt them more. And that's what I feel like I've been doing in every job that I have. I'm trying to make something better, not something worse. Wow. Great answer. Now, going back to the uh, the question I had earlier, which might be a hard answer or maybe not, looking back on your career, what would you have done differently? I might have stayed in Hawaii longer. <laughs> <laughs> I can't blame you on that one. I can't. If I could have thought of it then, uh, it was a beautiful place to be. We were there for a long time. What we did was working with the military and getting the native populations to be able to own the the homes but not the air rights and the ground rights. That was a clever thing we did. The other clever thing I did was in Alaska when we were dealing with some of the dogs, the dog uh, kennels, and where they were going to be moving for the Iditarod. And there were several that just weren't going to be able to sustain the Iditarod kinds of demands for the future. But they could grow mushrooms, and the Chinese and the Japanese could be a market for those mushrooms. And that is, in fact, what the neighborhood organizations agreed they wanted some space to go to, and the economic development community said, you know what, this could work, and, and it has. They still grow mushrooms, and they still sell mushrooms along the Asian Rim. Wow. There's still plenty of other places where the idea red red dogs uh, wind up staying and living and practicing and you know, on the Iditarod and winning them. Right, so those, right. Those are a couple of unusual things to have been exposed to as a, as a kid who, you know, occasionally we took, we took vacations uh, in local lake areas for a week or so and drove to my sister. Right, right. Okay. Now, what advice would you give someone, a student who would like to go into the education industry? The advice that I would give them would come after the questions that I would ask them. Mm-hmm. The, the field of education, the field of being a teacher, is really a passion-driven field. Um, and what we've made it in some ways is um, less about the passion and more about somebody else's determination of what the results are. Uh, we don't measure our high school students in Ohio by whether they uh, leave the high school and get a job or they leave the high school and they join the military, or they leave the high school and they go get an in-demand occupation so that they can fix somebody's car, and we all know what it costs to fix our cars. It's right. it just there's how many went on to college. And right. we have got to break that mindset. But some of the best talent in information technology right now are the people who went into the military and the really, really smart kids who just want to work with computers. Right. So we, right. we basically relegate them instead of worship and appreciate and encourage that talent to continue to prevail. Right, right. No, that's great. A great observation, and it just makes sense that we need to realign what do we value when we're looking at the end result of a successful and productive contributor to society, correct? And most people work, and that's how they come to understand what their contribution is. They take care of themselves, they take care of their family, they contribute to their schools, they contribute to other organizations. When I moved back from Knoxville and I went to Finneytown, uh, I, I was gradu- a graduation class that was over 1,000 kids at Whistler High School in 71. But I was looking for a smaller school experience because my son is very introverted. I'm the extroverted, super hyper extrovert in our family. And I thought, I need for him to be someplace where there's enough other activities 
but not so overwhelming number of people that only the top skilled people get to really participate. And that's what I found in Wyoming, but I couldn't afford to buy a house there. I could afford to buy a house in Finneytown, and Brett graduated as a salutatorian. Um, he went on to college and did very well, graduated Phi Beta Kappa with computer science and math and physics minors. And while he was in that school, he played or tried to play almost every sport that the school offered. He had six of those those things you put on your jacket when you're a junior or a senior. And one of them yep. was band. He was in the uh, marching band. And marching band counted as an athletic activity because you're out there on that field holding this equipment around the whole time. And I thought that was a clever thing for Finneytown to do, to recognize that. Finneytown also, when uh, my son graduated, had the top talent student who went to Great Oaks and was going for a firefighter and EMT. So the top three students were the one who had the highest score on the ACT and the uh, SAT, and then Brad, who was the uh, ludicarian, and then uh, a friend of his who played. They all three played on the soccer team, and he talked about what his field of interest was with the uh, EMT and firefighter. So I thought that school did a really good job of making points of opportunity available to the young people. There were even a couple of top students who absolutely decided they were going to take a, a year off and figure out what they might want to do. So they take a couple of different kinds of jobs and see what they learned from doing the jobs. I consider that school at that time frame, don't really know that much about it seven years later, but I thought that was really the best place I could have picked. And uh, my son flourished in it, and we flourished in the neighborhood still. Our neighbors are still there. I just got done introducing myself to a series of Nepali students and asked them if they knew Brett Marshall. And or I said my name, and they said, do you know Brett Marshall? And I went, yeah, just a little bit. I, I birthed them. <laughs> and I friends, and they walk my dog sometimes when I don't get time to do it. So I, <laughs> if, you can, if you can get the right school that fits for your kid and you can get the school to have enough choices for a kid that a kid can find out what it is that they're interested in. For example, Brett played baseball and he stood in that field kicking that grass for, you know, all those many times. And then at the end of it, he said, I don't want to play that anymore. I said, when you finish what you have to, what you signed up for, then you can decide whether you want to keep doing it or not doing it. But you cannot quit in the middle. Right. It'll play back there and kick the uh, dandelions until it's all over with. Um, and then he wanted to wrestle, and I looked at him and went, I don't think you're going to like wrestling. And he came home from the tryouts and said, you're right, Mom, I don't want my nose in any guy's armpit or <laughs> really anywhere on him. So I'm not going to be able to do that sport. Wow. Wise to figure that out now, uh, for sure, right? Well, it's better to, to figure it out sometime or other, but if you can if you can let your kids meet enough other kids of difference and be in enough other classes, where other people who are different than them are, I, I think those are all excellent ways to begin to frame what it is that you think you're gifted. But you can right. look at else's and say, I got a little of that, but nothing in there. I mean, my son really didn't have any kind of passion for wrestling, and he knew it with the first time he tried. Right. Right, yeah. Well, I really appreciate your time today, Sherry, all of your advice and your wisdom, and I appreciate 
sharing your career journey with us. What's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you before you retire and or more about your organization? Um, our organization can be reached at uh, the website www.forwib.org. It's S-W-O-R-W-I-B dot O-R-G. And we have research projects that we've done. We have newsletters to tell the story of the customers that uh, have benefited from our services. We have podcasts. And, and this one we're going to be sharing uh, on the website as well. Uh, we have other podcasts that we've done uh, nationally and um, locally. And it's all information about what the service of the federal government is to support young people, returning veterans, returning citizens from incarceration, people with disabilities, people who've been let go for no fault of their own, young kids who have to to go back to school to get their diplomas or to get their alternative diplomas. That's, we, are, we are about helping people to position themselves to be able to make a living that allows them to have the life that they want. That's really, really incredible that you guys provide that type of service for those in need. And again, I really appreciate your time on the Learn From Others podcast. Thank you for letting me do it. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Learn From Others, where we help others succeed by sharing success. Where will our next adventure take us? Subscribe to find out. If you know of someone who has a cool career story or occupation, contact Greg through Instagram at LFO. That's G-R-E-G-S-T-A-N-L-E-Y-L-F-O. And we will see you soon as we learn from others together.